All right, Acts chapter 3 is where we're going to be headed in our scriptures this morning. And I do want to give you a heads up that we do have those uh, Bible study notes in the seat pockets in front of you. This is one of those weeks where it's a good idea to jot some stuff down. So we are going to be making our way through a lot of scripture, and you're going to have an opportunity uh, to track along, and yet it's sometimes nice to just uh, jot those down a little bit so that way you're you're staying. Uh, whenever you see me with a lot of tabs, that means we're going to get to a lot of scripture today. So uh, praise the Lord. We get to go through a lot, but it's going to go quick. So as a reminder, though, from where we began last week at the beginning of chapter 3 of Acts is what we saw is uh, the lame man, the man that was positioned there outside of the gate called Beautiful, was actually through the Apostle Peter, the power of Jesus uh, given to the Apostle Peter, uh, reached out to the man, and strength came back to his feet. Uh, Luke goes to great detail to, to describe to us in medical terms that his uh, feet and ankle bones had no strength. In other words, they were out of joint. They were completely displaced. And so this uh, lame man was able to receive strength as the Lord healed him. And that said, we noticed in the passage last week that the lame man took a hold of Peter and John, that he uh, grabbed a hold of the both of them, that he stood close to them. And I bring that up only to say that as you uh, get the opportunity to win someone over to Christ, we get the chance to make a disciple of someone, uh, what you'll find is they will be looking to hold on to you. They will be looking to actually have someone to come alongside to, to be able to be propped up. And what an honor it is to be in that position uh, that Peter and John were in. For this man, uh, becoming a, a new believer, a picture of a new believer, has them to lean upon. And so this, this beautiful picture is he, for the first time in his life, is able to come into the temple to worship. And so where we'll pick up this morning is in verse 12 of chapter 3. Peter, now coming off of this uh, unbelievable miracle, he now seizes this opportunity uh, to speak. He, he, in as many chapters, gets the chance to give his second evangelical message. So we've got this uh, unbelievable miracle taking place, and now Peter seizes this opportunity to deliver a good old evangelical message. And in verse 12, Peter saw it and responded to the people, saying, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why... Looks so intently at us as though through our own power or godliness this man walk. And so Peter was very quick to take the attention that was now turned to him and point it back to where it rightfully belonged, and that was upon Jesus. That this could have truly been what we would call a ministry ender for the Apostle Peter. If he would have taken all the praise and all the glory upon himself, it would have quickly fizzled out in his ministry. And so uh, oftentimes this can happen as God allows a minister to have a great influence that they can begin to take the glory upon themselves. And God is not one to have to or want to share uh, in his glory. And so we see Peter very quickly and very wisely diverts the attention back upon Jesus instead of seeing his ministry come to an end. And he asks him this question in verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you marvel? Why are you marveling at this lame man who's now able to walk? Now to us, we're thinking, well, it's because this is marvelous, right? I mean, this is a miracle. What, why on earth would you think they marvel? But remember the history of God's people. This is what Peter's essentially saying. Why are you marveling at this? Think back to your history. This was a nation that should have never been a nation in the first place. They were just a family that God moved into Egypt that 400 years later, because of a promise made to Abraham, they come out victoriously with 2 million people. 
they not only come out victoriously out of Egypt, they're allowed to plunder this country and God bred sea. So what he's saying to these Jews gathered around is remember, the sea was parted on your behalf. You were able to cross on dry ground. Pharaoh's army was wiped out behind you. Not only that, but when you got into the wilderness, God provided. You cried out in need of food, and God provided bread from heaven. You called it manna. What is it? Is what they said when they woke up and looked outside their tents. God said, this is bread from heaven. I provided for you in the most miraculous way. Not only that, but when you think across their history, just to highlight one other point, I mean, think about David, right? Here you've got this 15-year-old boy, and a stone, and he's the only thing standing between certain destruction of an entire nation. Giants standing there before him, and you've got a boy and a stone. And what, David is, what Peter is saying is, don't forget what God's done for you. Don't forget the ways that he has miraculously provided time and time again in your lives. And then we begin to think about our own lives and turn this introspectively. Think about how many times God has provided for you along your journey. Right? It's amazing all the times you've been in the wilderness, I've been in the wilderness, and God has miraculously provided. And yet, how quickly we forget. We forget. We are a fickle bunch. And we just completely forget God's promises as if he's not ever going to provide again. But Jehovah Jireh, every time he provides over and over and over again, this is what Peter is saying. Is he said, why do you stand around and marvel? And then continuing in verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Verse 14, But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer, speaking of Barabbas, to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And so this uh, reminder that we have, and we covered a bit of this last week, that here's this paralyzed man, right? This is ultimately a picture of uh, you and I. This, this man who from birth was out of joint. His, his bones did not work. He was not able to gather any strength to be able to go into the temple and worship. And so what they have before them is a picture of a transformed life, a life that was previously separated because of uh, his sin separated from God, like you and I. Thanks to our nature that was passed down from Adam, we all have and share an S-I-N problem. We are infected with this disease. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because, we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I got it out. And we're darn good at it, right? This is a part of our nature. And because of that, we're separated from communion with God. We are unable to come in and worship. And the thing is, for every human, they know it. We all know it. What Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, Solomon, the wisest man in the Old Testament, so I didn't say this, the wisest guy in the Old Testament said it, and I state that because Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I'm not sure how wise he truly was, but uh, I'm not going to get in trouble with that one. So what he says in verse 11 is that he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also put eternity into their hearts. So for every person, there is this idea, this thought of eternity, this feeling that there has to be something better. I feel disconnected, out of joint, with what's really taking place. And so for mankind, there's this understanding that we have a God conscience. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that even nature itself screams out that there is a God. Basic 
elementary physical processes point back to there has to be a designer behind all these things. But the issue is we're out of joint. We, we need to be relinked with him. But the problem that we see back to Leviticus, I know you guys love it when we go back to Leviticus, back to the law, Leviticus chapter 21. You're saying to yourself right now, yes, Leviticus 21. I was excited to get there. And here we are in Leviticus 21, what Moses, and he's told by the Lord to speak to Aaron. Verse 16 of chapter 21, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, no man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame who has a marred face or a limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or as a hunchback or as a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab or is a eunuch. The idea is for no man who has any type of defect, man or woman in this case, none of them are allowed to enter into the house of their Lord to worship, to offer the bread to God because of their defect. You understand that in this place, what we're reading into, what we're looking at is that we were called to be kings and priests. That's what Revelation says. And yet because of our defects, we are not allowed to enter into his presence. We're not allowed to enter into worship except one way, through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ who covers each of us who are willing to lay down our lives and repent and turn and go to him. And so if we are in that spot, if we are willing to lay down our lives, choose to believe upon him who can actually make us whole, who can put our joints back together so we can run and leap and go into worship, what we find is that Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, this is what Paul says. I'll bring it back to the New Testament now. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7 says, Therefore, because of this, because of the blood of Jesus, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What a beautiful promise. On the outside looking in, disjointed, unable to come into fellowship with God. We understand we have a broken fellowship, but because of the blood of Jesus, we are now not only called just merely priests, not even called slaves, but sons. And if sons, then we are now heirs of God that we, through the Christ Jesus, can sit at his right hand. It's this beautiful promise we see uh, through Scripture. Now, what Peter's saying here in Acts chapter 13 is this is the promise that you've been out of joint, and yet what did you do? Um, you actually killed the author of life. Thank you, Peter, for making it so abundantly clear to these guys is that they killed the prince of life, and, and instead selected and picked a murderer. And this phrase, prince of life, is maybe better translated uh, author of life. The very author, the one who wrote down our lives, instead of choosing life, they've chosen uh, death. But here's the thing. Here's the beautiful promise in the midst of it all. The prince of life whom God raised from the dead. That the prince of life, the author of life, did not stay that way. But instead, he was resurrected on the third day. And because of this, what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the most beautiful chapter in the New Testament uh, related to the resurrection. But what Paul says in verse 19, I put this one on the screen to save you a little bit of flipping. He says, if it were not 
Uh, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable, or we are to be pitied more than all other men. If the only hope we have in this life is in the death of Jesus, then we are of all men most pitiable. Because that means we serve a dead God. Do you understand that all these world religions, the only thing they have to actually worship is a dead God or a wooden dead idol. They have nothing to worship that is living. But what Paul is driving at is because of the resurrection, we don't serve a dead God. We serve a living God for us living people. And so if he raised himself from the dead, that means he's going to also raise us from the dead. Hence, the running and the leaping and the joy that this man now has as he comes into the temple. This is how we are actually called to be able to come in and worship. Worship should be a time of running and leaping and joy. Why? Because you are all a bunch of dead people before Jesus. What joy we should have. And so here we see this, this man is now able to come into this relationship because of the resurrection of Christ, who, by the way, what Peter says is, you are all witnesses of this. You're all witnesses not only of this man being raised up from outside the, the uh, gate beautiful, but because of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus appeared before many of them, up to 500 at one time. They were witnesses of it. And so through this, in verse 16, we see in his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And so what is the activator in this whole relationship? It's faith, right? So that's the activator. I hope in your, uh, your translation of the Bible, though, they've capitalized some of these pronouns. I don't know about you, but I read verse 16, and I'm like, what in the world? His, his, his. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. The capitals are varied because what Peter is stressing is it's the faith given by Jesus in Jesus that allowed this man, the lowercase h, to actually have soundness in his feet. And so who is responsible ultimately for this miracle? Whose faith is actually the one that made this possible? It's not the paralyzed man. I mean, think about it. This guy's just outside the gate begging, hoping for a few bucks. He's just hoping he gets a little bit of pocket change so he can afford to live. It wasn't his faith at all, but instead what Peter's saying is it was his name, the name of Jesus, and the faith given by Jesus to Peter to be able to reach out his hand and take this man's hand. It wasn't, in fact, even Peter's faith. It was God's faith that he gave to Peter. And so the point to all this is it was the measure of faith that was given to Peter. And oftentimes, you've probably been in church settings and you've heard this uh, uttered, that if that person just had uh, faith, if so-and-so just had faith, they could be healed. Well, I'm going to take you to this story as example number one, that it wasn't the faith of the paralyzed man at all. It was the measure of faith given to Peter to reach out his hand and help a brother that was in need. The, the measure of faith that each of us has given. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, For I say that through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. 
to each of you, God has given a measure of faith. Some more, some less. And yet, the faith you're responsible for is the faith that he's given to you. He's given you a measure of of faith to do a thing. I I was uh, talking to a guy at the YMCA this last week, and just in the course of conversation, finding out he loves Jesus, and and, and he, he asked what I do, and I talked about a church plant, and he said, boy, I'd never... I'd never have the faith to go plant a church. I said, well, here's the thing. Um, it's just a measure of faith I got. I, I, whether stupidly or not, I never thought that it wouldn't actually work. I mean, that's, that's what faith looks like, though, when God gives you that measure of faith. Now, there are things that I see other people do, and I go, well, I don't have the faith to do that. But the thing is, God didn't give me that faith. He gave me this faith and The process that we have in this relationship is that through exercising the faith that we're given, what God does is gives us more faith. As we exercise this faith muscle, he will actually turn and give you more faith. Matthew chapter 25 is where I'll go for an example of that. Jesus here, and we covered this a few months ago in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. He's talking about what the kingdom of heaven is and what each of these different servants are given. They're each given a specific uh, group of talents or an amount of money is what it means. But look at with me in verse 21. His Lord said to him, this is the servant who exercised his talent or invested it. He says, well done, good and faithful servant you were faithful over a few things and i will make you ruler over many things enter into the joy of the lord you were faithful in a few things i'm going to now make you a ruler over more things so you can exercise more faith so the simple math behind this is he gives us the faith to do a thing we exercise the faith that by the way he already gave us he then gives us more faith to turn around and exercise more of the faith that he already gave in the first place. The only part we have to do is just take what he's given and put it into practice. And he will be faithful to give us even more. Now, Peter, continuing on in verse 17, says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it out of ignorance, speaking to the death of Christ, as did also your rulers. And so you got to love the tact of Peter. Peter's like a lot of people I grew up with. He's like, look, here's the deal. You killed the, the author of life. Congratulations. But good news, you did it because you were dumb. I mean, that's essentially what Peter You did it because you were an ignoramus. Thank you, Peter, for making everybody feel way better about themselves. But what he's getting at is much like what Jesus says in Luke chapter 23 as he's hanging upon the cross. He looks out over a group of people who had no idea what they had just done. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant to what they're doing. Please forgive them. That's what Peter's really getting at here, even if his tact is maybe not always the best. In verse 18, he says, But those things, those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So here's the thing. You, you did it. You killed the author of life, but you were ignorant to it. But, but here's the good news. It wasn't an accident. This was not an accident in any way, shape, or form. This wasn't some type of cosmic joke. This thing was prophesied before the very foundations of the earth. Jesus was a lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth, meaning that even before Christ created you and I, while you were yet sinners, he died for you. Even before he created you, he died laid down his life 
for you. And so we have this beautiful promise that Scripture is going to be fulfilled. And so this is what Peter lays out. You've, you've crucified the author of life. The good news is you didn't know what you were doing, and it fulfilled prophecy. And now Peter's going to get to the application in his message. Now, most of you are thankful. Finally, some application. How is this going to affect my life? Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And so Peter begins in verse 19 with his application by saying, repent. Repentance is a changing of our mind that leads to a change of action. Oftentimes, we want to change our action. We want to get all of our actions squared away so that then our mind will catch up. But that's not at all what repentance is about. A repentance is a changing of mind, a turning 180 degrees and thinking differently about a thing. And because of that, Christ promises then to change your actions. It's actually from the inside out. It's not, I'm going to get my act together. I've got to get cleaned up so I can get into church. No, get your butt into church and then let him clean you up. Change your mind, turn directions, and then come in here. Because the thing is, uh, you probably heard this said, and it's oftentimes said by uh, the super educated and those that are highly intellectual, that uh, Christianity and the belief in God is for the weak. And the fact of the matter is, um, they're not wrong. It is for the weak. But God is not merely just a crutch for the weak. I would tell you, he is also a little bed, and he is a gurney, and he is an ambulance, and he is the whole hospital. And for all those that think that it's only for the weak and that they are not weak and we are, the reality is they are far weaker than what they even understand. That this place, as the doors open on a Sunday morning, this was set up and established to be a hospital. We are called to be paramedics as believers, not the police. And oftentimes when people come in and they've got their sin and their jacked up mess, the first thing we want to do is we want to start asking questions. Let's get to the bottom of it. We're like Columbo. You know, we're, we're going to get to the bottom of this mystery and figure it all out. And yet what you find is what people really want you to do is just take and apply some pressure. Just put some pressure on this thing and stop the bleeding. And so that's precisely what we're called to be because here's the truth about Jesus. He came in order to be a physician. In Mark chapter 2, he says the, the, those that are well don't need a physician, but the sick. The sick are the ones that need a doctor. And so we're called to be a hospital for those uh, that are sick and ailing and hurting so that we can prop them up and see them built up, brought back to strength again in their feet like the paralyzed man. And, and, and to go a little bit further, as we see God speaking of himself, I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is a popular verse especially around Christmas time but I want you to hear what God says about himself because this is important he says in, in chapter 9 verse 6 for unto us a child is born speaking of the Messiah unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace and so many times that the things that we are suffering from, the things we are ailing from, these aren't physical issues. These are oftentimes mental problems. And what we really and truly need is a counselor. And there is no better counselor than the capital W, wonderful, capital C, counselor, and that is Jesus Christ. That he is seeking to counsel us and to build us back up, to give us strength. And you know why? It's not because you're a sinner 
and you're messed up and you got all these problems and, and all these things begin to come back up to the surface because I want to tell you if that's how you feel about yourself, you need to send that lie back to the pit of hell where it originated because the reality is this is what God thinks of you. Malachi chapter 3 all the way to the end of your Old Testament this is what the Lord says about us. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. This is highlighter worthy if you're one who highlights in your Bible. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. That sounds like a church. And they listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. And here's what the Lord says in verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On, the, on that day, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man who spares his own son who serves him. What the Lord has to say about you and I is that you and I are his jewels. Specifically, they are mine. And his plan for us is to spare us the way a man spares his son. Those of you with children know how deeply we would desire to spare our own children. We would give our lives for our own children. We would lay ourselves down for them. That's precisely what God is trying to communicate. This is what he really and truly thinks about you. And you know how I know that it's true? He died for you. Why on earth would he die and lay down his life if he did not feel this way for you and I. And so with that knowledge, back to the scripture at hand, verse 19, that we are to repent and be converted so our sins may be blotted out. So at the end of this verse, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The promise here is for times of refreshing. Now this is going to have two different fulfillments if you look at this verse. The first is a prophetic fulfillment. That prophetic fulfillment deals specifically with the nation of Israel. The time of refreshing is spoke to in Deuteronomy 20 and Joel 2 and Zechariah 12. Don't worry, I'm not taking you all those places. But here's the thing. What you need to understand is that God is not done with Israel. That May 14, 1948 holds so much significance for us as an understanding, not just because we need to know dates and history, but because on that day, the nation of Israel was reborn. And this is important for us to understand but because for centuries we had these Old Testament scriptures and all these promises for Israel, and yet you know what didn't exist? Israel. There was no Israel. For 2,000 years, there was no Israel. So what the church began to do was began to take on the promises of Israel. We must be the new Israel. We're the spiritual Israel. Now, this has got several issues, and a lot of the reason why to this day our eschatology, our understanding of the end times, is still all messed up because in the Old Testament, there's promises for what's going to happen to Israel during the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of tribulation. We begin to take those things upon ourselves because if you're going to take on the promises, you must also take on the curses of Israel. Oh, just one way. But all that changed on May 14, 1948, when in one day, as Isaiah says, can a nation be born in a day? The answer is with God, yes, it can. And in one day, the UN came together and they said, we're going to have a new nation. A nation was born on that day. 
And so all these promises now come flooding back as we see this nation reborn, literally resurrected. In history, no country has gone more than two generations without a homeland and been able to maintain their language, their culture, and their religion. Two generations. This nation lasted 2,000 years and maintained their culture, their religion, and their language, all intact. Why? Because God said so. That's why. It's not any more complicated than that. And here's the piece that I wanted to drive home for us today, is if he's not done with Israel, he's not going to be done with you and I either. So when we read through scriptures like Romans 8.28, and we see that uh, God is going to bring good for all people who are loved and called according to his purpose, he's going to make all things good. I don't know about you, but some days it doesn't feel that good right? It seems like this is no good. But here's the reality. Uh, If this holds true that God's not done with Israel, he's not going to be done with me. That means Romans 8.28 filled in my life yet. So if it's not good, it's because he ain't done yet. He's still working on things in our lives. That's the reality of this as it relates to you and I. And there's a very practical fulfillment in our lives that ties to this prophetic promise for Israel. And that is Uh, For each of us, we all have a list of sins. We've got sins a mile long. As I said, it's in our nature. We're we're really good at it. And so what we also find from Scripture is that God is a meticulous bookkeeper. That means that he has written down in a book all of our sins. Oh, this is good so far, right? We're feeling really good about this. He's written everything down. And also, not everything we've only done, but also all the things we have thought about doing. To God, everything is going to be naked and exposed if we have to stand before him at the white throne judgment. And all those things are going to be read out loud. Now you're horrified because those things that were in your mind that you were hoping to be able to keep suppressed that only you and him knew about, it's all going to be naked and exposed. That gets to be very terrifying. And then in Scripture, we get to places like Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 where Paul writes, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All those handwriting of requirements, all that list of things, those sins that you don't want to talk about, you don't even want to think about, all those things were written down. What this scripture says is that he has taken those handwriting of requirements, those breakings of the law, And he has nailed it to the cross, and he has buried it. And when he is raised from the dead, it's all still on the ground. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. That's what the apostle Peter is saying, that your sins may be blotted out, removed from the record, taken off of this scroll, literally to be smudged out to where nobody even knows what was there anymore. It's as white as snow. What Micah chapter 7, since we're spending time in the Old Testament today, Micah chapter 7, verse 14, says this. I'm sure you don't frequent Micah a lot, but go to Nahum and hang a left. Micah chapter 7, verse 19, says this about our sins, that he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Imagine that, our sins, our transgressions, all our failings, he has cast those into the depths of the sea, way down there deep. Now, 
The issue with that is, um, what happens if we try to go dredge the up again? I mean, we could still get down there uh, into the sea and try to dig those things back up to be remembered until you get to Revelation chapter 4. I didn't put this in the notes, so I'll just go there myself. Revelation chapter 4, John the Apostle gets a vision of heaven. He gets a vision of the throne of God, and this is what he sees in verse 6. Before the throne, there was a sea. There's that sea again of glass, like crystal. Understand the significance between those two verses. Our sins have been cast into the sea. Before the very throne of God is a sea, but it's no longer accessible. It's capped, covered up. It's glass. You can walk upon it. You can never go down there, back to those things, to dig those up again. And so often, as Christians, what we want to do is we've got this handwriting of requirements against us, and we want to go back to the cross, and we want to dig them back up, and we want to put them back on. But they don't fit. We're not dead any longer, and yet we're trying to wear dead man's clothes. Why do you look for the dead among, or the living among the dead? Why do you go looking around in a land of living for dead people? Forget it. It's buried. It's gone, never to be brought up again. And this is precisely what, as we look at Peter saying, this time of refreshing now upon you in verse 19, this is what we're reminded of. We're to be refreshed in that fact. We're to be refreshed in the fact that this isn't just an eternal promise. This is a today promise about our sins. The abundant Christian life that we're called to lead is a life where God actually fights our battles. You remember the story as the nation comes into the promised land, as Joshua leads them across the Jordan, what God did for them. He fought the battles. It didn't mean that in this abundant Christian life, that's the parallel. We're called to live this abundant Christian life like the Israelites brought into the promised land. It didn't mean we would have no battles. It meant that God would fight them for us. That's the refreshing. That's the rest that we can have in this very hour, in this very time that we're in. All right, I got myself all worked up. All right, verse 20. And that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you uh, before and so the promise here is on the return of Christ that he God is going to send Christ back on whom was preached to you before and then in verse 21 whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began and this is recalling back to the restoration of all what is in part the restoration of all things it's the resurrection of of Israel. It's the restoration through the millennial kingdom. The promises God gave to Israel, he is going to see fulfilled. Paul spends three whole chapters in Romans. Don't worry, we're not going to go through three chapters of Romans, but three chapters in 9 through 11 covering the fact that God is going to keep his promises. Because his promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. It was a God, it was a promise God said, "I'm going to promise this and swear to this uh, by myself." because there's nobody else that I can trust in this. No one else that has as much honor as I do, so on my own behalf, I'm going to promise to fulfill this. And so Israel will have their Messiah. He will return. It will be Jesus, Yeshua, coming as their Christ, their Mashiach. And what they're going to say in Zechariah 13 is they're going to look at him, and they're going to say, where did the wounds come from in your hands? 
And what happened to your side? And he's going to say, in the house of my friends is where I received these things. And they're going to mourn for that time period because it's going to be an understanding that they crucified uh, the Messiah. And so in verse 22, Peter's going to continue this message. He says, For Moses truly said to their fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet with a capital P, like me, from your brethren. Him you shall hear things, whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and the prophets from Samuel and those to follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's that Abrahamic covenant. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And so here's the promise of God, first given to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Now, why is that? Is it because he loved the Jewish people more than he loved us Gentiles? No. It's because they possessed the very oracles of Scripture. They had the Old Testament for thousands of years. They had all these Scriptures. God went to them first with the plan because they knew the Word of God and they could go out, if they would just repent and believe, they could go out and teach the Word of God. And so it's by faith comes hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 10, 17. And so if, there, if others are to come to Christ, it's going to be through hearing the word of God. And so Peter gives this impassioned message. He goes uh, all the Old Testament. I find it fascinating that Peter went to Deuteronomy 18, Genesis 12, Genesis 18, Genesis 22, Genesis 26, Genesis 28. I mean, this is a fisherman. Think about that. This is no Ph.D., he doesn't have a theology degree. He, he doesn't have possess any of these things, and yet he knew the Word of God. Was he empowered by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But God will not give you what you have not first received. What Peter had done over this time he spent with Jesus was over and over again he had poured through Scripture, learning the Word of God, studying the word of God. And so when his opportunity came, he was able to rightly divide the word of God and lay out a biblical message to go through the text. And so here's the encouragement to you all today. If you want to be a man or a woman of God, three simple things, the first of which is die to yourself. Peter began this message by being selfless, by turning it back to Jesus it is a part of what we must do. We must crucify our flesh. And boy, it does not like to be crucified either. We must die to ourselves. We must put others ahead. Jesus first, and then others, and then you. That's that little acronym, JOY, J-O-Y. It's Jesus, others, you. Self is key to this. The second thing to know if you want to be a man or woman of God is that you are called on to pray. To pray. That doesn't mean just pray in your quiet space while that's vitally important, but also to pray with people. Don't miss an opportunity to get together and pray. Someone comes in your office or in your workspace, take that opportunity to pray. You run into them at Walmart and they say, this is what's going on in my life. Take that opportunity to pray. 
I cannot tell you how much of a difference this made in, in my wife and I as we were coming to truly know the Lord when people would just stop and pray for us at the church we went to. They would stop us in the most random of places, in the middle of an aisle at Walmart. Like, this is weird. Yeah, a little bit. But they would stop and they would pray. It changed things. And thirdly, but not last, is know the Word of God. To dig in, to know, to, to study His Word. This Word of God is living and breathing, and it is inexhaustible. You will never be able to get to the depths of His Word, and it is exciting. It shouldn't be just laborious and drudgery. This is getting to know the very creator of the universe, studying the Word of God so we get to know the God of the Word. I mean, imagine that. He wrote us this so that we could take time to spend with him. I had a little bit of time with somebody a few weeks ago, and they said, boy, if, if Abraham would just speak to me, or if God would just speak to me like he spoke to Abraham, I, I know that I'd be obedient to that. I said, yeah, the thing is, he did. <laughs> he gave you this. It's way more than what Abraham had. He speaks to us daily, every minute if we so desire, through his word. And so the encouragement here, the exhortation here is to feed on it regularly. If Sunday morning is the only time you're spinning in his word, I'm telling you, it's not enough. It doesn't matter how good of a job I do at trying to break down this text. It's not enough. I mean, you wouldn't go out and just eat once a week and feel like you're nourished, right? And so when we think about that, we wonder why Saturday night comes around and we're starving spiritually. Like, oh, I feel so lost. Well, here's the thing, you did not feed on the Word of God at all for the last week. There's a reason you're starved. And if you do that, if you feed regularly on His Word, I promise you, He will use it. He will put people in your life, and he will use that. He will not waste an opportunity for you to be able to invest in them. And you will grow in confidence speaking to what God's word says. Usually it has to do with what he's speaking to you in that moment, but you, you'd be amazed how many times it will speak directly into somebody's very soul. Now then, chapter 4, we'll, we'll finish in these first few verses of chapter 4. Don't worry, not the whole chapter, just the first four verses. Now as they... Uh, spoke to the people. This is Peter and John speaking to the people and the priests. The captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And so what we see is, as Peter and John are now preaching and speaking to these people, they seek to lay hands on them. But it's, it's a one particular group. It's the, the Sadducees. Now you remember, as we studied through Matthew, the group that was uh, directly opposed to Jesus, and it was the Pharisees, right? They loved rules and tradition. They, they loved the oracles of Scripture. They loved the Word of God, and yet they didn't apply it correctly because they didn't love people. They loved their rules way more than they loved their God. And so this, these rules and this tradition, uh, but now we see the Sadducees are the ones that were directly opposed to the apostles. The Sadducees didn't care at all for the traditions. They were the, they were the liberals. They were the less conservative group. What they cared about is this preaching of miracles and the resurrection of the dead because they did not believe in the miraculous. They did not believe. They were pragmatists. They were materialists. 
They believed in their economy and what they could do for themselves. So they didn't believe in miracles of the resurrection of the dead, which is precisely why they were so sad, you see. Look, I'm going to have to do it every time, and you can either laugh at it or not, but it's not going to stop me, all right? You people are not going to deter me from this truth. All right, so this is the, this is the bottom line for the Sadducees. But here's the thing that they could not deny. They could not deny a transformed life. They couldn't deny this man who they'd walked by sitting outside the temple time and time again is now standing in their very midst. It was transformation. And here's the thing. As God builds a testimony in your life, no one can refute it. No one can come up and say, I don't believe this part of your testimony. They may want to argue your doctrine. They want to, may want to argue your theology. People all over in churches want to thumb wrestle all of these things. But you know what they can't deny? A changed life, a testimony. There is a power in that thing. Because the reason being, transformation is visible. They can visibly see you're not the same as you used to be. I mean, think about this as it comes to our physical fitness. Do you know there's a reason why when there's a workout video size programs, it's always someone who's physically fit that's doing the training because we want our bodies to be transformed like that. There's a reason you don't see 42-year-old going bald overweight guys doing workout videos because ain't nobody going to believe that. Like, I don't want it. That looks like that guy's been eating donuts. I have. But I think I just confessed. There we go. I got it out there. But here's the reality. It's transformation that's the key. It's a transformed life. People are not going to be affected around you if they don't see transformation, if they don't see change in your life, if they don't see change in your speech or the jokes you used to tell or the things you used to watch or the way that you interact and handle your kids. If they don't see transformation, they're not going to see Jesus. And Jesus is very much in the transformation business. And so if you don't have a story about transformation and what Christ is doing in your life, please see me after service. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's pray for that because he loves a transformation story, and it is powerful. Verse 4 as we wrap up today. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The word of God Friends, the word of God is what they believed in. The reason we don't see nearly the push of Pharisees in the book of Acts that we saw in Matthew is because these men knew the word of God. And as it was exposed to them, many of them are the ones that came to know Jesus as their Savior. They came to this point of believing. And for Peter and John, it doesn't look that promising. I mean, they just got thrown into jail, right? But how glorious was it that they got thrown into jail because of righteousness. I think of all the things I did for a lack of righteousness. To be persecuted for righteousness sake. Not just for being an idiot. Which is how I would have been persecuted before. Here they're persecuted because they were righteous. For the sake of righteousness. But look at this. They've got this powerful testimony that's there. This man who's been brought back to life. Back into fellowship with God. But the key thing that took place was the word of God. They heard the word and believed. One last place in Scripture to go this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Some of you might already have this highlighted in your Bible. If you don't, I'd encourage you. The writer to the Hebrews writes this. 
For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If you want to have change happen in your life, if you want change to happen in the lives of the people around you, here's the secret sauce. It's the word of God. Exposing yourself to his word, letting it go deep into your very soul. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can, it can divide between the soul and the spirit. And guess what? It can point out the thoughts and the intents of man. I oftentimes don't even understand my own thoughts or my own intentions. But the word of God is the thing that exposes this for each of us, and it is powerful. It is the piece that changes lives. You, you see this story, 5,000 men now come to believe in Christ Jesus because of God's word. And so the encouragement here is to know it, to study it, to spend time in it, to highlight in it. It's not against God's word to highlight, to write things in the margins, in the notes, take notes, invest in God's word, and you will see a payoff in your life and in the lives of the people around you. And so, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your promises, which we get to see take place in the word of God. Thank you for transformed lives. Thank you for a man that we get to see that, that did not have use of any of his faculties to where he could come into work. Yet because of your name and your word, he was able to rise and come in to worship, to commune with you. Lord Jesus, please make this place a house of worship a house where the sick and the hurt and the lost can come and they can be put back into joint by the power of your word. Lord, please be with those in our lives that are, that are in contact with us. May we be able to invest in them. May we be able to speak the words of life into them that are all directly from your word so that many can come to know you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're up to. Thank you for the gift of transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you please stand? Are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel an empty feeling? Cause shame's done all the stealing. Are you desperate for some healing? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way with ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sin in the heat. His love is strong and His grace is free And the good news is I know that He can do for you what He's done for me Let me tell you about my Jesus And let my Jesus change your life Hallelujah 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 Amen Amen who can wipe away tears and 
broken dreams and wasted years until the past to disappear. Oh, let me tell you about my Jesus and all the wrong turns that you were going on to if you could. Who can work it all for you, good? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sin that he can save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free. In the cruises, and I know that he do for you what he's done for me. Jesus, let my Jesus change your life. Hallelujah, 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 amen, amen. Who would take my cause to Calvary, pay the price for all my guilty? Who would care much about me? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Oh. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his face is free. And the good news is that I know that he can do for you what he's done for me. And let my Jesus change your life Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah Amen, amen oh, Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah And the church says, amen. Thank you. Let me encourage you guys as you go out and about uh, for this week, uh, let Jesus change your life. Uh, for me, uh, coming to know Christ came while a pastor taught Psalm 87. And it, it doesn't mean that he, he didn't deliver some great evangelical message. It was just simply the word of God being taught. That's the peace that changes lives. All right, guys, God bless you. Have an awesome week.